Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 through verse 48. Um, If you didn't bring your Bible with you, I encourage you to take the Pew Bible out in front of you and turn to page 963. And then if you don't own a Bible, um, the Bible that's in that pew is actually yours to keep. That's a gift from us to you. You're not stealing it from us. We want you to have the Word of God in your hands and available to you at all times. And so if you don't own a Bible, you do now. So please take it. Again, our scripture is Matthew 5, 21 through 48, page 963. And there it's written. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath on your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be as sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would please join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're, we're here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I kind of want to take us back a couple weeks because we're nearing to a point where it's easy to forget where we've come from. Jesus is, is this miracle man going through the land of Israel. He's getting this great name for being able to heal people and perform signs and wonders. And so he's beginning to draw great crowds wherever he goes. And, and so in this instance, there was this great crowd around him, but he withdrew from that crowd. This teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is not to that great crowd. Rather, he goes up the mountain a ways, and his disciples and those who call him Lord are the ones who follow. And there, as he sits down, he is teaching to believers. And so these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are not for all of the world. These teachings are for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount by, with the Beatitudes. And, and, and we discovered and learned that the Beatitudes really describe someone who is able to call Jesus Lord, that they have gone through regeneration, and this is the very character of their hearts. And then he talks a minute about salt and light uh, as, as that is our purpose in the world now that we're in Christ. And then Jesus talks about his purpose. Right, He talks that his purpose isn't to abolish the law and the prophets, but that he is here to fulfill them and uphold them. And now what we have today is the very section where he said, not only did I tell you I'm here to fulfill and uphold the law and the prophets, I'm going to tell you and show you exactly what that looks like. And so for, for one of the first times, Jesus gives believers actual instructions for what a Christian life is to look like. These, these actions that we are to live out is not so that we can earn our way to heaven. These aren't things to be completed and followed with perfection before we are in Christ Jesus. Rather, it is because Christ has reconciled us to the Father and he is our Lord that it is out of grateful obedience we work to hold these all the way until we reach glory in which time that is when we will be perfect as our Father who is in heaven is perfect. See, Jesus ends with that there at the end. And I don't want us to be confused that, that God is putting unrealistic expectations on us living a Christian life. That, that perfection's the goal and anything short of that is a failure. But rather, perfection is an aspirational goal and one that we know when we reach heaven and there's no more sin... And there's no more injuries, there's no more suffering, and we're together with the Father in heaven. All of these sins that he is telling us to avoid and to live in, in the way the Father lives, 
all of that sin will be gone and perfection will be there. And then when the new kingdom and the new earth are established, that will be the way of the land. See, in Genesis, we, we understand that when God created the world and he created Adam and Eve, at the end of it, we're told in Genesis that he saw all that he had created and called it very good. And oftentimes we get confused and think that we're still very good because we're part of God's creation. But remember, he called all of it very good before the fall, before sin entered. And so now we live in a fallen world and we ourselves have a sinful nature within ourselves and because Jesus has come into our lives and and we have been born again through the power of the Holy Spirit he says now that you have this regenerated life you have this new life there's a new tree now there is a new form of living for those who are in Christ Jesus as we journey towards heaven and we journey towards paradise we journey towards the recreated newly formed Eden this is the living we are to go on during that time. You know, here in this explanation during his sermon, as they thought he came to abolish the law and get rid of it, and he says, no, 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 listen to these words. And he demonstrates that he not only came to fulfill and uphold the law, but in his instructions, he deepens the Christian responsibility in our living. Right? He begins with anger and lust that coincide with two of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment. And he talks about them. And he doesn't just say that, that murder is wrong and that, and that adultery is wrong. He takes that living in Christ makes them deeper. He doesn't give us excuses for allowing them in our life, but rather makes the requirements around them stronger. In fact, he says that anger is murder. And even lusting is adultery. And then he moves into faithfulness, into covenant marriages, and honesty in speech as paramount for our living in this world. And remember, all of this is Jesus pointing us to a Christian life of righteousness in him. But for us today, I really want to focus on the last two instructions he gives here, the last two contrasts that he displays. It is the very highest point of his sermon. This, this teaching that he has in these last two sections are both the most admired and simultaneously most resented teachings of Jesus. Nowhere will we find a greater challenge to our very living in Christ. Nowhere in Jesus' instructions does it become clear and obvious that we are to be distinguished and peculiar and countercultural in our living and doing and our talking. And so we're going to read that first section Again, where he's talking about retaliation. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to walk a mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
And we go, yeah, that sounds like Jesus. If we've heard it more than once, we go, yeah, that, that sounds about like the Jesus we, we've been taught. But if, but if we pay attention, we'll pause for a minute and say, wait a second, what, what is he asking of us? In fact, he's not asking. What is he commanding of us? In which, remember, right before this, he said, do not relax even the least of my commands. What is he actually commanding us here? Turn the other cheek. Someone begs of us. We can't say, oh, I'm out of change. No excuses, right? Someone wants to borrow money. No matter how sound of an unsound of an investment it is, he says, give to them. Let them borrow. He says, someone wants to take your clothes from you. Don't just let them take one piece. Give them more. He says, someone asks you to carry their stuff and forces you to take their stuff and carry it for them and work for them. Go further. Go the extra mile in it. He says, all of this. And, and, and it's no wonder that this teaching of Jesus is, is so resented because when we look at it through that lens, we say, what? Jesus wants us to forsake all of our things? That is not wise in this world to be just loaning out money to everyone who asks. And if everyone begs, I'm going to run out of money to give. And if they ask for my clothes and I give them more, I'm going to be naked. And if someone hits me, they get to hit me again. I'm going to be beat up and naked and alone and without money. Why would Jesus call us to be a doormat? But no, he's not calling us to be a doormat. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London, said that we are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammer. Right? We think a doormat and we think we're just getting walked over, but, but the anvil shows strength. It's not the one doing the hitting. It's the one receiving the pounding, yet not losing form, not losing shape not being broken down, because the reality is for us, dear Christian, our foundation is firm, not in our clothes, not in our health, not in our money, not in our investments, but in Christ and Christ alone. And, and he demonstrates here that, that the depiction of a Christian is one who is incredibly strong and secure in their faith in Christ, that, that it has self-control of themselves and a love for others that is so powerful, they're able to reject all forms of earthly retaliation. And we're like, that's a lot, Jesus. That's a lot. He's literally asking us to be willing to surrender it all. And not surrender it all to someone who's maybe deserving, but surrender it all to someone who's seeking to do harm to us. To forsake all of it. But Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he himself doesn't go on to do. Right? It's in his dignity and in his self-control that he did not retaliate as he was mocked and he was beaten and he was jeered and he was spat on as he carried his cross to that hill. Jesus says the way of Christian living is to live as he lived, walking up that hill to that cross. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany as the, during the rise of the Nazis. And, and he's written several books and, and ha, uh, was instrumental in some Christian resistance during that day, although he mourns himself that he did not see the rise soon enough and speak up louder during that time. But he says that what Jesus does here in this sermon is to call us into visible participation in his cross. Jesus is your Lord, and the way is Christ. Well, the way of Jesus comes along the same way as the cross. The Apostle Peter wrote it this way in his first letter. He said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then he keeps preaching. Jesus keeps preaching, moving right along. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I, I imagine that if we gave ourselves just enough time right here to pause, we could easily come up with a handful of, of personal enemies. And if you're thinking, not me, pastor, well, I, I imagine you could come up with a handful of people that aggravate you regularly and that you wouldn't be too upset if they stubbed their toe. Enemies of all different sizes. Jesus calls us not to rejoice in their suffering and in their pain, but he says that our enemies seek to do us harm, we must seek their good. Love enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Not only does he call us into non-retaliation, willing to forsake everything we have to our enemies and those seeking us harm, but then we must also seek their good in loving them and praying for them. You know, over the last decade or so, here in the United States, we've all noticed it. We've noticed that, that division and strife among us is, is growing. And we noticed that through the pandemic, people's patience with one another is completely worn out. See, I mean, even in this church, we once used to have division, but yes, it was over whether we were rooting for the Gators or we were rooting for the Seminoles. 
And then the Bulldogs showed up, right? And then people from Ohio kept moving down. But we laugh. Our problems with each other are much more serious these days. We see each other outside of the church and run into other fellow believers. But we know each other not by our faithfulness to Christ, but by political opinions and ideas on morality and government. Folks, Jesus did not call us to die on that hill. He called us to follow him to the cross and die there so that we could live for him. Our retaliation is not filled with vengeance, hate, or vitriol because someone is thinking different than us, believing different than us, but rather the retaliation Jesus actually calls us to is filled with love and prayer. While others may call for disaster and catastrophe to be upon us, Jesus says that we are to call on God to be a blessing for them. Because if you only love those who love you, he says, how are you any different than the tax collectors? How are you any different than the world? See, Christ calls us to something greater. He calls us something bigger than ourselves, that in our loving and, and praying for our enemies, we can do so without any self-interest. See, what really benefits us is when they suffer and when they're thwarted and when they're brought to justice. But it benefits them and it benefits God when we pray that God intervene in their lives, not to smite them and wipe them away, but that they too might be reborn into Christ. That's what representing Jesus in the world really looks like. It's what makes us different what makes us peculiar to everyone else. For you see, it's written in the word there by Paul in Romans, while we were yet sinners. Sinners, meaning enemies of God. We were God's enemies. We were rebelling willfully against his commands and running from him, telling him at every turn we have no need for him in our lives. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, proving God's love for us. See, this Christian life is meant to be one of great distinction when contrasted with the world. But we know, we've heard our friends or our neighbors tell us in passing or at a, at a gathering at, at someone else where there's mixed company, well, you know, I tried the church thing. It's filled with hypocrites. Or you begin talking to younger people. They'll tell you what they really think. And they'll tell you truthfully. And it stings. They'll say, well, you know, it's really hard for us to tell any difference between someone who goes to church and who doesn't go to church. 
other than on Sunday mornings they're occupied for one hour. Folks, that's not what we are to be in our life. We're to have more than just a one-hour difference. And then the other 167 hours in the week look like the world. It's our speech, it's our living, it's our doing that Jesus calls us towards perfection, towards the Father. As we've been reconciled to him, we are not to go and join the mobs and die on hills of this world, but because we have died to ourselves on the hill with Christ, we now can live for him. We can take all the pounding from the world that it gives us, but we stay strong in Christ because all we need is Christ. So we have some questions to ask ourselves. Jesus gives us these commands. He deepens them for us. He makes this great challenge for us as Christians to live. And so we have to answer with honest self-reflection in ourselves when we go out of this place throughout the week. Would people recognize us as different than the rest of the world? More loving, more forgiving, more praying? Or do they see and hear us talk and behave just like them? Jesus says even the Gentiles do that. And he reminds us before he goes into this, don't dodge or relax these commands. But rather than imitating the world around you because it is easy, be distinguished because you are in Christ, even when it's hard. And it's the Apostle John who would write to the church, and he says, we can love. And we love because it is God who first loved us. Amen. Amen. This morning, we are going to stand and sing. And as we stand and sing, open the eyes of my heart. I invite you at this time to consider these words of Jesus and to go in that time of reflection and sing for Christ. And maybe you realize, you know, my life does mimic the world more than it mimics Christ. And begin asking for that strength from the Spirit to look more like Him. Let us sing.